How do Muslim communities in the United States and the United Kingdom compare? Are understandings and experiences of Muslim identity and heritage different on each side of the Atlantic? Join us for this edition of the Maidan podcast when we'll be speaking with Sugra Ahmed, who recently returned to her native England after several years at Stanford University in Northern California, where she served as Associate Dean of Religious Life. Among other topics, Sugra will be sharing her frontline observations on the dilemmas associated with being Muslim in the very specific culture of Silicon Valley's technology industry, and also her reflections on the ethical debates surrounding accusations of abuse by Muslim religious leaders. This episode of the Maidan podcast is produced in association with the Muslim Atlantic Project, an initiative of King's College London and George Mason University with support from the British Council. everyone, and thank you for joining us for this edition of the Muslim Atlantic podcast. My name is Peter Mandeville. I'm at the Ali Ak Center for Global Islamic Studies at George Mason University, and I'm going to be speaking today with Sugra Ahmed, who is the Director of Education for the RFK Human Rights in the UK. Um, I wanted to first just say something very briefly about the Muslim Atlantic Project more broadly. It's an initiative funded by the British Council, and it's a partnership between King's College London uh, and my own university, George Mason University. I'm partnering on the research with Dr. Dan DeHannis Nilsson uh, at King's College. And the purpose of the project is to explore some of the similarities, but also differences between Muslim communities in the United States and the UK. Um, as religious minorities, uh, the two communities obviously share many of the same kinds of dilemmas and issues, uh, but there are also some pretty stark differences between the two communities, particularly in terms of histories of immigration, uh, levels of socioeconomic and educational attainment that mean at times the British and Muslim experiences have been very different. Um, and I can't think of anyone better to help us uh, explore these questions than our guest today. I first met Sugra Ahmed 10, maybe closer to 15 years ago now when she was working at the Islamic Foundation in the UK. Um, and she then went on to uh, spend time at the Wolf Institute at Cambridge University. She has held leadership positions within the British Muslim community as a past president of the Islamic Society of Britain. Uh, but most relevant for our conversation today, she's actually been professionally based in the United States for the last few years. Um, so I wanted to welcome Sogra, thank her for joining us, and ask her to tell us a little bit about what took her to the United States. Hi, Pete, and thank you so much for having me. That's a that's an amazing overview of the last 15 or so years of my life. And uh, um, it feels very good to be here in conversation with you. Um, so I, uh, I was fortunate enough to um, apply for a fellowship uh, at Yale. Uh, it's called the Yale World Fellows Program. And um, I, uh, you know, um, somebody from, from a working class background to, to successfully um, enter that space uh, felt like a, a real honor, a real blessing, a real gift, but at the same time, um, quite daunting, uh, not just because it's across the pond and, and contrary to popular belief, these two countries, America and the United Kingdom, are not as similar as a lot of people uh, led me to believe um, or, or generally is the reputation. And so going to the East Coast um, 
in hindsight now was the, the, the nicest and smoothest way, easiest way to then eventually head to the West Coast. And so um, I spent five months at Yale. Uh, I left um, the UK when we had just had the Brexit referendum. And I uh, came towards the end of my fellowship as we had the US presidential elections. And uh, realizing very, very starkly that um, actually, you know, I, I was I was operating in a bubble as diverse as I had thought my set of friends and family and communities had been. Um, I didn't I didn't really appreciate that that diversity existed uh, in terms of the outcomes of both of these results. And so I decided that I would go out and find people who would vote in a different way to me in the US. And I had two months left on my visa to do that. And so um, I, uh, I took off. I started from the West Coast, started from Utah, went down to Southern California and then state by state made my way all the way to the East Coast, uh, to Georgia. And so uh, that experience was incredibly special for me, not just because I got to experience all of these different Americas, which is, which is, you know, the truth about America. There is no one America for me. Everywhere you go, even a state the size of Texas, you go to the north of Texas, to the south of Texas, and it's a very, very different way of being, a very different culture. And so I was able to experience all of those, but in a way that was really special. I was on a listening exercise. So my intention wasn't to talk, uh, uh, to talk shop or to debate and discuss and, and, and convince people of a different argument, but it was actually to open my heart and my mind and understand where they're coming from and appreciate them for that. I don't have to agree with everything, but I can mm -hmm. learn to honor and appreciate where they're coming from. So I was really lucky, Pete. I, I got to stay in their homes. Uh, I got to go to sports games with some families, uh, family dinners, um, diners. The number of conversation I had in those contexts was, was fascinating. Um, and just really be at one with the community in the way that it is and not, not behave like a tourist or a, uh, a traveler of a different kind. So that was very exciting. And it ended actually with a trip over to Stanford um, in California. Um, to, I, I, I was invited to, to uh, do a couple of talks and that um, eventually turned into a job offer. And uh, the stars aligned and, and, and I felt like there was a blessing in that work. And eventually, it took me a while, but eventually I made the decision to go over. And um, I worked uh, as Associate Dean for Religious Life for about two and a half years and recently came back to the UK. Wow. Okay. So, um, you know, you obviously are incredibly familiar with the, the, the British Muslim scene, but now have had a chance to spend some time kind of experiencing, dwelling in, working in, you know, something like the American Muslim scene. So I, I just want to ask you kind of what first struck you as the main differences between those two Muslim scenes when you got to the U.S., you know, both in terms of just general, you know, your general impressions of, you know, people's different attitudes and approaches to life, but also kind of even more specifically in terms of religion, what sorts of issues and debates, you know, seem, seem to be, did the two communities seem to have in common and, and where did you sense some differences? So I think uh, it's really important. Context is really important for me. And my background is uh, I'm Pakistani by heritage. Um, I'm third generation. I come from a very small working class town in the north of England. And so um, 
you know, there's a, there's a certain demographic here in the UK that is very different in the US when it comes to the Muslim community. Ethnically, um, both communities are very different, where in the US, a third of Muslims, I believe, are African-American. In the UK, that figure is very, very different. Um, the kind of diversity that exists in the US amongst Muslims, you know, in, including Hispanic communities or Latinx communities and others, we just don't have that, um, certainly not uh, not in that volume, obviously. Um, being a much smaller country, but but even to meet somebody from that background is very very rare. Um, so I feel I feel like the the demographics are different in terms of um, British Muslims on the whole tend to be working class at least in terms of their where they started in terms of their heritage. Um, we are uh, I'm third generation as I said, and I have a niece and, and four nephews who are now fourth generation. That plays a significant role in how you understand your place as a British Muslim or an American Muslim and what you want to see going forward. Does the narrative that you've been handed down from your parents or your grandparents in the UK case, does that fit? Does that feel good? Does that feel like it recognizes you at the heart of it as a whole human being? Um, and my experience is that, you know, in the US, I mainly encountered second generation Muslims who were still trying to be um, mindful and um, faithful, I think, uh, to their parents' experience. And their parents often had, had migrated to the US in order to advance in their education and therefore their employment. And often the people I met were very, very successful in, in both those areas. And so their children, although they would visit the motherland, as it were, were also pushed um, to consider cultural values of their heritage as their own. So, for example, things like arranged marriage or um, uh, uh you know, the way in which you make decisions, you consult your parents first. And I think obviously that's related to age also, you know, the younger you are, the more you're going to do that. But I also feel like it's um, it's a journey, a generational journey. And so here in the UK, I feel like we're much more confident about saying that doesn't fit for me anymore. Or, you know, I try to make that work. It just doesn't sound right to me. So the way in which we might understand LGBTQI issues, obviously there's the, there are religious divergences in terms of who believes what and who's welcome and who isn't welcome. And, and a lot of that is very problematic actually. But I find that that if you are from a community that um uh, or you have an element in your identity that the wider community doesn't recognize as wholesome or as uh, legitimate um here in the UK it's it's hard it's a struggle it's tough but it's something that as third and fourth generations grow up they're finding much more confidence in saying well if if you don't want me to belong to you and if I don't belong to this then fine I'll make space for myself somewhere else and and that's really complicated because we're going to be losing a whole tranche of our community just because we haven't quite discussed and debated these issues well enough for us all to be able to understand when it comes to human rights, for example, when it comes to religious rights, who has access to all of that. And so my my experience was that... Um, on the West Coast, it's very different to the East Coast. On the West Coast, um, the, whilst the traditional religious institutions like the the massage, the really big massages in Northern California, were still, um, you know, very much led by male imams. But when it came to access to the space and the way in which people sat, women and men, at least to the gatherings that I went to quite often, would sit in the same space. And that wasn't just some of the progressive organizations that might come to mind, but actually even the traditional mosques. So that that became a, a very... Um, 
to me, it felt very comfortable. And I, I was glad to see that. But at the same time, the monopoly over those spaces and who makes decisions about how those spaces are used still is very much what I would call like a brotherly network. It's a community, cultural community network where a group of families would get together because they maybe they, they fund the space or they historically set up the space. Very much like the UK, they still run those spaces, which was a little bit uh, difficult for me to understand. But at the same time, I, I found that uh, language on the West Coast was much more inclusive of the diversity that exists within American Islam. You know, whether we're talking about ethnic diversity, gender diversity, sexuality, all sorts of different is issues that we struggle with on the East Coast more, I think, and, and certainly in mm -hmm. the UK. Um, mm -hmm. the, the, the confidence there, or at least the ease with which that language was used was really heartwarming. And, and I feel like that's something that I'm bringing back, that language is now normal for me. It feels odd not to speak in those terms uh, where we're, you know, we're assuming everybody's male and female. Well, actually, what about gender fluidity? We're assuming everybody's heterosexual. Well, we, obviously, we've known for generations that that's not the case. Um, we we have always understood that the religious leadership is a domain of a male. Actually, on the West Coast, there are several mosques that are founded and run by women and are inclusive. So women and men stand together or everybody is welcome, essentially, in those religious spaces, no matter who you are, as long as you self-identify as Muslim please come along and, and, and join us for Juma, for example. Okay. And, so, and I, I had really wanted to specifically get into your perceptions or your impressions of kind of different American Muslim coastal cultures. And, and so you've covered that really nicely. There, there is something about the kind of West Coast scene that I'd wanted to ask about a little more specifically. You know, we, we did a podcast a couple of years ago with Shahed Amanullah, and he was he brought to my attention something that I wasn't really aware of, which is, for example, the 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 often un, invisible and unacknowledged role that Muslim Americans played in the early venture capital scene in Silicon Valley, um, and just the tech industry more broadly. And obviously, you know, based there at Stanford, um, you know, you you must have had some fairly extensive contact with the kind of Muslim scene within Silicon Valley, and so I just wanted to kind of ask you about your impressions of of that world. So, so there are two different dimensions for me. Um... Uh, in relation to that. One is the, the campus scene and its relationship with Silicon Valley. So in this case, of course, Stanford, but I'm sure other campuses had a similar kind of relationship where there's a very well-worn path between Stanford University and, you know, any number of the top, the, the, the largest uh, firms in, uh, in Silicon Valley. And so it became, it often became an ethical dilemma for a lot of Muslim students uh, when they were thinking about what to do after their, their undergraduate degrees, because this this well-trodden path was pulling them and luring them and, and encouraging them. But their ethics were sort of jarring with that about how they want to see the world in the future and what they now need to do in order to make that a reality. That was, that was I think, a difficult choice for a lot of Muslim students. Those who did follow that path um, often did so for, um, you know, whether they were computer science or CS majors or otherwise, often did that because it's an exciting scene, it's cutting edge, it's futuristic, it's it's kind of the place to be when you're in that part of California. It's hard not to think in those terms because Silicon Valley is just so incredibly vast and influential. Um, many, as you know, of the, those who are um, some of the most successful people in Silicon Valley have some connection with Stanford University historically also. So 
so there was there, there's this dilemma about how to enter that field. Should I enter that field, and then how do I do that, and how long do I stay that be- stay there before I feel like my heart or my mind is being changed in a way that I'm uncomfortable with, right? So what's my cutoff point to keep myself uh, safe in inverted commas? The the second part of that experience is uh, to see people from Silicon Valley come onto campus at peak religious periods. So for example, for Ramadan, for Friday prior to, but particularly for Ramadan and then for Eid, um, to see some of those young people in the main come onto campus and and look for uh, community and have iftar together with students and staff and all sorts of people who would gather in our spaces. That was really interesting. And often in in my conversations with them, I'd find that they're yearning for community, they're yearning for a sense of belonging, a spiritual or religious sense of belonging, because there's a complete absence of that in their in the rest of their life. And, and partly that's true for transient populations anyway. It's hard to find a sense of rootedness and belonging. And, and that part of California is definitely um, uh, affected by transient populations, whether it's students or whether it's professionals. But, but also because once you enter Silicon Valley, even though America is very confident and, you know, for a Brit, sometimes even aggressive when it speaks about religion and, 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 and what that means for them in their life, actually you go into these spaces in Silicon Valley and there's almost, um, well, there's a complete silence when it comes to theology or spirituality. All of your needs are met, for example, at, um, at the campus that is Facebook in Menlo Park. You know, you could live on that campus for weeks on end and never need to go home. Every single need is catered for. You want somewhere to sleep. You want somewhere to shower. You want different kinds of cuisine. You want comfort when you're working. You want friendships. You want uh, you want to play games. You want to go for ice cream. Everything is on that campus, and it's it's beautiful the way that it's been designed. But when it comes to your sense of spirituality or your religious identity, there's nothing. If you and a group of colleagues want to get together and, and, and pray Jumu'ah, for example, on that site without having to drive all the way out to a mosque that is, you know, at least an hour away, so sometimes that that it just isn't feasible for Friday prayer. You wow, have that to far, huh? Wow. Right, right. And so you have to find somewhere a little office or a cubby hole that you can sort of at least pray Dhuhr in, at least the midday prayer. Um, so for Friday prayer, there would definitely be a pull for people that this is closer to me than the masjid is. Um, it's an open campus. There's no prohibition in terms of who can come on to campus. And I know for a fact that the students will have organized Juma prayer. And, you know, I'll, I'll be ticking a box in terms of my spirituality and I might meet some people um, along the way. So it's really interesting that the, the tech bro culture that you would find in Silicon Valley doesn't necessarily take religious accommodation or uh, a spiritual need into account when they live in their day-to-day life, but actually when it comes to the peak moments in the week or in the yearly calendar uh, when it comes to Islam, they will they will be drawn to a community um, where they, they feel fulfilled and nourished, not just, not just in terms of food, but also in terms of spirituality. It was fascinating. I really enjoyed that experience. Well, and did, can I ask? Did, did you get a sense of whether you know any Muslim employees of, say, a Google or a Facebook had considered approaching management there about like making a space available for Juma, or, or do, you, do you think that they just felt that that wasn't really something they should even get into because it would sort of be against the the the, the norms of that space? 
the culture of the space really dictates uh, what you feel you can and cannot talk about. And if we're, if we're thinking about recent graduates or people who've been working in Tech Valley um, for you know less than five years, the confidence isn't really there to be able to say to your manager um, that this is a need that I have and I'd like, I'd like for us to think about how we can cater for that need. Um, I'm sure there are conversations going on in a very small way about having time to then go away and find somewhere to perform a prayer. But I know that uh, for, for Juma'a um, on campus, of which I was um, a significant part of, I would see uh, for the two and a half years I was there, every Friday, like clockwork, um, some very, very senior personnel from companies like Facebook, Google, Uber, who would come to Juma at Stanford. And so these are people who've been in their roles for a very long time and have achieved yeah. some some great success and yet they would come to campus for their friday prayer for their spiritual nourishment hmm. okay really interesting you know i i wanted to kind of track back a little bit to you know the period of time before you had this experience in in the u.s and i'm, I'm just wondering kind of growing up uh in the uk and being part of the British Muslim scene, as it were. I wonder what kinds of assumptions and perceptions of American Muslims you had before you moved to the States. You know, obviously there are certain American Muslim figures that, you know, have a fairly prominent uh, transnational persona. Yeah, I can think of one in particular who is actually based there in the Bay Area mm-hmm. <laughs> where you were working. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I just wonder what, you know, what, what, what was your sense or stereotype of American Islam before you came to the U.S.? And to what extent was it challenged? And to what extent was it confirmed? You know, I mentioned before that, that I found... Um, I found a greater sense of inclusivity in language and manifestation of religion and spirituality amongst the ethnic diversities that make up American Islam, uh, on, certainly on the West Coast. Um, and then there are pockets elsewhere. DC has a really vibrant community, for example. Um, so I, I initially, um, I thought it was like that everywhere. Um, that was my impression. And I didn't understand that when it comes to religious scholarship, on, at a, and you're right, quite right. At an international level, we hear these names and and um, outputs from their institutions uh, that 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 exist on social media uh, and have done for many many years now. Um, for me, that the challenge, however, you know, having said that, is that though the religious leadership that I encountered, whether it was online or in person, I felt I felt that there was. For me personally, and obviously my my experience is just just my own, um, for me it left a a lot to be desired. And I struggle with saying that because there's a lot of, there's an awful lot of good work that has gone on, you know, establishing institutions and, you know, enabling young people to go through those institutions and become uh, religious leaders in their own right across America, um, taking ownership of what that education should look like. It adds to the vibrancy of American Islam. And that's an amazing gift. That's something, some, something to be really proud of. When we think about 21st century challenges that exist in different ways across both sides of the pond, so whether we're, we're thinking about um, abuse within religious environments, and we know of many stories now, um, you know, one or two here in the UK that have become very public, several in the US that have become public, at least within the Muslim, within the, within the American Muslim scene. Um, the silence from 
the highest levels of religious leadership in America really disturbs me. Um, it, it, it disturbs me not only for personal reasons, but because on the ground, I realized that the students I was working with actually didn't pay any attention to that, either because they didn't hear about it or um, they were completely oblivious that that's something that senior religious leadership ought to take a view on, ought to take a stance on, and ought to help in some way to um, cure our community from these ills by saying that this is not, this is this is intolerable, it's a criminal offence, um, It's uh, even if it isn't illegal in some cases, it's a deep, deep um, betrayal of the religious values that you espouse in the rest of your work when, when you're engaged in abusing somebody, women, children, men too. Um, so the silence in, in that arena really perturbed me. Um, again, when it comes to the race issue, um, I felt that I feel still currently very passionate about the fact that um, our Islamic scholars, religious leadership, whatever you want to call them, um, have a significant role to play in all of these issues, but particularly when it comes to racism. When it comes to our African-American Muslim community, um, we, we as in brown, Arab, and all sorts of other pockets of, of Muslim communities in the US ha- have been quite negligent. And the negligence for me starts at the top. It starts at the religious leadership level. It may not be the vocation that that individual, that scholar, um, uh, uh, sort of decide their inspiration to enter religious leadership may not have been that they want to tackle all of these different inequalities within our community, but I think it becomes your responsibility whenever you um, become a leader in this setting. It's part of your um, ethical and moral responsibility. For me, it's also your your religious duty. And I feel like some of the things that have happened in recent years um, publicly and privately, that have polarized African-American Muslims from uh, the rest of the Muslim community have been, um, I mean, the nicest way I can put it is negligent. Um, In addition to that, there is a whole scope of learning and understanding that we need to undertake in the U.S. uh, about what it means to be African-American and Muslim, right? What what role does the history of slavery and the civil rights movement, what role does that play in the mind of a young African-American American Muslim growing up um, within the midst of a mixed Muslim community today. And I think most Muslims who don't belong to that experience really have absolutely no clue about A, how to engage with that. And that fear of of offending and and getting it wrong just basically silences um, uh, even those who want to engage. And B, that we don't have really a culture of... uh, of at least starting that journey, learning what it means to be the other, and then understanding how to engage with the other, what language to use, you know, what is and isn't appropriate when we're talking about dress and uh, features and hair and all sorts of um, day-to-day things that really play a role when it comes to um, leading a religious community, right? And so if we, if we, if, for example, Islamic scholarship is saying that in order to be, um, uh, I don't know, prayerful, uh, you need to be in a position where you are dressed in a certain way, you are you are within this kind of a congregation, you speak this kind of a language when you're in prayer. Those things can polarize our communities. And I think in a country as big as America, with as diverse an American Muslim population, we need to be much more creative and confident um, about engaging in those areas. And we need to engage that community in leading us on how they, how they, 
would advise us on engaging with them at a very deep level. So, you know, when it comes to arts and culture, I feel like we're doing much better in, in engaging with the, the heritage and the mix that comes from all of these different um, kinds of American Muslims. But when it comes to um, accepting each other as religious equals, I just don't think we're there at all at the moment. And, and a lot of that is because of the reasons that I've just shared. Okay, great. So just briefly, one, one final question, if I may, and it's, you know, it's inspired in a sense from, you know, what I took away from um, the time that we saw each other while you were in the States. You, you may, might recall that I came up to Yale shortly after you had arrived to, to give a talk. Yeah. Um, and so we had the chance to sit down and have coffee then. And I got the impression then that you were really sort of enjoying having the opportunity to kind of to, to press the reset button on who you are and kind of start over and kind of, you know, to, to be free of a, of a context and to some extent a Muslim context, you know, where there were particular expectations about who you were and what you were supposed to do and what kind of Muslim you were supposed to be mm-hmm. and kind of having the opportunity to kind of start over. And, and, and my sense at that point was that it was, you were experiencing it as a very liberating kind of thing. Um, you know, and, and yet in the course of our conversation now, you know, you, you, you've obviously, you know, you obviously experienced so many different aspects of the American scene, the American Muslim scene, um, you know, so some of which you seem to describe in very positive terms and other aspects, you know, seem problematic to you. So I just wanted to ask briefly, when you first got back to the UK after being in the States, um, is there something you know, that you realized you, you had missed and, and, you know, you know, what, what was the thing that gave you some sense of a, wow, I'm, I'm glad to be home. (laughs) Apart from being on, on home soil. And, and really that is a a huge pull more than I'd ever, ever imagined it could have been just to be back in Britain, um, made me feel like I didn't have to, uh, constantly translate in my mind what somebody was saying versus what they were actually, what they meant. So, you know, the further, further West you go, the harder it is to really comprehend <laughs> what does this yeah. person mean when they say this? So I felt like I was, I was, um, translating in my mind all the time. Um, I think that the thing that you, you know, you described that moment at Yale beautifully and you remind me of a really, really happy time that became the foundation upon which I then spent the, 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 the years, um, soon after and hopefully will continue to, to grow and evolve in that way. Um, Yale was a phenomenal opportunity that I, I didn't have to represent anybody. I didn't have to speak on behalf of anybody. I didn't have the the weight of responsibility, whether it was a day job or um, my voluntary work or supporting another organization. I was able to divest from so many different organizations and institutions that I had just for years just carried on being a part of for all sorts of different reasons. One big reason, I guess, now that I look back, is unfortunately representation, not just as a Muslim, but also as a female. Um, And the absence of voices like mine in the spaces that I was operating in was a real worry and still is in many ways. Um, I wore a headscarf at that time. I wore a hijab and I had worn it for many, many, many years. Um, I decided that that was no longer something that theologically or spiritually, I believed in in the same way. And so I decided to 
um, I decided to only wear a headscarf when I was in a religious space or when I was leading on any kind of religious worship. Um, and that fits for me right now. That really works. And so making changes like that in the US was a lot easier because people didn't really know me and I didn't have to engage in debates and discussions about the rights and wrongs of these actions I was taking. So it enabled me to behave like a normal human being, Pete. And as odd as that might sound, um, I think it just took me a very long time to you know, undo some of the expectations that other people would have and understand that th those are their expectations. And actually, even as a British mus Muslim, you know, leader in inverted commas, if you like, I don't have to behave in, in the same way whilst I, on the inside, I'm evolving, I'm changing and I'm growing. And so to come back to the UK now after having gone through, um, you know, having the time and the space and the heart space to be able to unpack and let go and, you know, let new things in has been has been really quite um, a treat. And it's something that I feel like a lot of us deserve and we just don't get the space to do that. So coming back here, I feel much more confident um, about who I am. I feel uh, much more at ease, um, not having to sort of, you know, justify or explain. And, and now looking back, it, it just sounds awful that I would I would have felt that way but it you know if I'm to be completely honest that's exactly how I used to feel and I no longer feel that being home um not just close to family and friends but to um to a country that I feel a really strong sense of connection to I come from this soil I remember when I was making plans to come back and I was kind of upset um on FaceTime with my mom um because you know I I just couldn't explain it to her in any other way, but I have so much to be grateful for. And um, I'm coming home and I want to hold on to that gratitude in a very deep way. And then, you know, unfurl it or, or release it here in the UK and see what good it can do. And, and at one point she said, you know, I don't know why you get emotional about these things. You're coming home to your own. And she stopped herself for half a second. And then she said, yeah, it's true. You're coming home to your own soil. This is your soil. And I think being away from this place really um, reinforced that, um, you know, I always took ownership of my country and my identity as, as a British, uh, as a British Muslim specifically, but coming, uh, back after several years away has reinforced that in a way that feels very, um, fluid, uh, on my terms and, um, and an expectation that those who understand who I am and seek to engage with me will accept me for who I am as a whole person. And I think, sadly, that's just not a given in religion, not just in the Muslim community, but in religious communities generally. And I think we we spend so much time restricting and suffocating, uh, oppressing people that we consider those controls of our religion to be um, God-given and actually... Um, is something quite different. It's the liberation that a human human being feels, and then still feels connected to their religion and their spirituality. That's the that's the real gift, and that's that's the gift from God for me. Sugra Ahmed, thank you so much for speaking with us today and for sharing your experience of the Muslim Atlantic. Thank you, Pete. It's been an absolute honor. Thank you so much for doing this.